The Clifton Duncan Podcast is supported by the beautiful people who watch, listen, share, and subscribe to the show. If you enjoy my work, please consider donating via PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. Perhaps become a paid subscriber to my newsletter, The State of the Arts, and or patronize my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. All the links are in the show notes. Thank you so much, and enjoy the show. Hello there, ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. This is my podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for yet another fascinating conversation living at the nexus of art, entertainment, culture, and society. However, you're consuming this podcast, perhaps on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you prefer to scratch your CDP itch, make sure to leave a like, a comment, or a review. If you're watching on YouTube, I would deeply appreciate you if you subscribed. And as always, you can help this podcast and community grow by sharing this show as much as possible. If you love it, share it with your friends. And if you hate it, why then share it with your enemies. A couple of <laughs> brief announcements to make. Uh, did you know you can find me on Rumble? That's where you'll find shows that are too hot for YouTube, featuring an array of controversial interviews you can't find anywhere else with great people like Jay Bhattacharya, Billboard Chris, Dr. Chris Martinson, Viva Fry, and more. So be sure to sign up there and support me on Locals while you're at it. The links will be in the show notes. I've also launched a new newsletter called The State of the Arts. Uh, you can sign up for free for saucy commentary from yours truly del delivered straight to your inbox, but paid subscribers get to hear my essays brought vividly to life in my smooth, velvety, chocolate, baritone voice. Fellas, do not send these to your girl. Ladies, my DMs are open. Lastly, I'm a one-man operation. I prefer not to be a starving artist, so whether you sign up uh, on Locals, become a paid subscriber to my newsletter, or donate via PayPal, I will love you forever. It will keep me uh, bringing you that super hot fire like you're about to hear today, and uh, this one's going to be a scorcher, um, so let's get down to business. I got to say, I'm a little up in my feelings today, friends. Um, the, the fine arts in this country and throughout the West at large are under attack. There's no two ways about it, no beating around the bush, there's no other way to say it. Under the guise of progressive buzzwords like equity, socio-cultural locusts masquerading as artists are busy hollowing out America's elite cultural institutions and industries in the name of racial justice. In the wake of George Floyd's death in 2020, museums, conservatories, the theater, the opera, symphony orchestras, and beyond have bent over backward in a crusade to right historical wrongs in a pathologically altruistic cultural revolution that, despite its stated aims, achieves little else than the erosion of artistic standards, the erasure of history, the deprioritization of merit, and perhaps most devastating for our society, the eradication of beauty. Now, few people are as qualified to expound on these matters and their significance as my courageous guest, who was making history, shattering glass ceilings by being the first woman to ever return to this podcast. She is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author who has received numerous awards for her writing. I love these liquid use. Her newest book, When Race Trumps Merit, exposes how the obsession with equity is 
among other deleterious societal impacts, impoverishing the imagination, stunting the capacity for wonder and joy, and stripping the future of everything that gives human life meaning. My friends, it's an honor to reconnect with the fearless, the savage, the real-life strong female character that is... <laughs> <laughs> Miss Heather McDonald. Heather, how are you? Well, I'm great, Clifton, except I'm very sad to be recognized as a female. I was hoping you wouldn't notice that. It is well, totally not a, not a part of my identity, and I don't view it as an accomplishment. But, you know, what can I do? I guess it's 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 there. So, uh, well, well, see, I, I, I knew you'd hate it. But the thing is, nowadays, in the years since we've spoken, it seems that, uh, that the need to recognize people as females <laughs> has, has become more crucial than ever. That's true. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. And I am definitely binary. Uh, or, or yes, I am. I am binary. And I believe in the binary. So so good enough for that. And oh. I'll say I your your chocolate baritone is absolutely seductive. The only thing that would put me even further over the top is if you spoke Russian. Uh, friends have been sending me various Russian clips reading Russian composers names and their operas. And I find it the most astounding language, the sibilance and uh, diphthongs are just completely amazing. It's, it's even better than Portuguese Brazilian, I mean, rather Brazilian Portuguese. So that wow. will be your next step. But but as it is, uh, it's it's an amazing baritone. So oh, well, I appreciate that. I'm gonna well, I'm gonna step into Paul Robeson's shoes and start learning <laughs> Russian. Maybe not inherit the politics, but yes, uh... exactly. No, because, <laughs> these days, still different, but still bad. All right. So uh, you are super busy right now, and uh, also for those who are uh, who are only listening, you are missing out on uh, Miss Mac Miss uh, H Mac rocking the fuchsia today. Um, <laughs> but uh, you've written this fantastic new book, and I have to say, it took me. I haven't even finished reading it yet, and part of the reason is it's not for not trying. It's just that I stopped every few lines because I was so enraged and 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 um, and uh, I don't know depressed by everything that I was reading um, but I have a short time with you today because you're 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 doing the circuit right now which you know you need to promote this book and I, I want to help you do that so um, you 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 cover in in your book um, which you know as usual is quite incendiary and just pulls no punches so thank you for that um, you, you know you cover the uh, you cover medicine you cover the law but you spend a substantial portion of the book um, covering the arts uh, and, and humanities and culture so I guess my first question for you is, uh, why did you decide to spend so much, uh, dedicate so much time to that specific aspect uh, when it seems like nobody else is really interested, on, to be honest? Well, it's the thing I love the most. I uh, feel myself extraordinarily enriched and privileged to have had access from a young, as a young child to classical music. Not that I, you know, only listen to classical music. I think the American songbook tradition and jazz and uh, you know, bluegrass, as well as Eastern European world musics are absolutely fantastic. But uh, my my soul really is in classical music. And I also was privileged to read literature at a time before the yahoos stepped in and started telling students that they should only read through their narcissistic, petty victimology and, and expect that uh, the authors would mirror themselves back to themselves, defined in the most trivial terms of sex and race. And I love visual arts. So, so really, um, the anti-meritocratic, anti-universalist attack on Western arts uh, absolutely infuriates me. And I'm appalled by the leaders of arts institutions, whether it's uh, heads of museums, art museums, or heads of orchestras, 
uh, theater dance groups that have basically completely betrayed their institutions. And after George Floyd, they all declared that now their mission was not to present the best music or put on the best theater. It was to be anti-racist and doing so entailed uh, massive lies about the artistic canon and besmirching and, and betrayals of what it is they're privileged to curate. If you're a fan of the Clifton Duncan podcast, you'll love my new newsletter called The State of the Arts. Sign up for free for weekly articles as well as the latest information on my upcoming projects, shows, events, and appearances. And for just $5 a month, you can hear me bring my articles to life in my velvety baritone voice. Join the growing heterodox arts movement and subscribe to The State of the Arts today at cliftonduncan.substack.com. Well, yeah, I, I totally, you know, it was so bizarre after, you know, his death in 2020, and I was getting these emails from these institutions and surveys, which mentioned uh, terms like white theater spaces, which is a term I'd never heard prior to 2020. I've never in my life had set foot in a theater space and just looked around and was like, God damn, it's white in here. Like, no one has ever done that. <laughs> I've never been motivated to do any of that. But that's what it that's what it became. And these people would, you know, send me these emails about, you know, I'm so I mean, you mentioned the cowardice, which um, which is annoying, but but twinned with that cowardice is such a, a huge amount of condescension. Um, you know, I, I forget which uh, element of the book it was, but uh, there, there's these sweeping statements like, we know that you're exhausted. We uh -huh. know that you're afraid. Right. We know that I'm thinking to myself, you don't know anything. I just I, <laughs> like what 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 is wrong with you? I mean, I, and, and it, it's it's annoying that people can't see how condescending and frankly racist a lot of this stuff is. That's true. And like you're, you're talking about, you know, you never heard people in the theater space say, wow, this is white. That's the same thing. Like until now, it, it, this was a longer time going than just short, George Floyd. I mean, every, things have been bad in academia for a long time. And so there's been all sorts of identity based studies in the arts already. But still, uh, it was novel for most of the public to look back into the history of a European tradition like classical music. And Europe was demographically Caucasian. That is just what it was. That was the landmass. That that is not per se racist. Just as the fact that Africa was demographically uh, mostly African, and at least in you know most of the sub-Saharan area, that doesn't make it per se racist. And China was Chinese. That doesn't make it per se racist. But they would go back and they would look at the history of classical music, and they would say damn, that's racist, it's all those white composers. Well, that's the only people that were basically around to compose. But now all you need to do to take out a tradition or an individual is to label that tradition or that institution or that individual white. And you've done all the work you need to do in the, in the post-Floyd uh, anti-racist moment. You know, a, a lot of what's underpinning this is what's known as a disparate impact. Could you go into uh, what that means for my audience, please? Well, it's really the most egregious in areas of law enforcement and, and kind of meritocratic institutions. People may have noticed for decades, there's been lawsuits against say, uh, firefighter qualification exams or police recruiting exams. And the claim was, is that those exams were per se racist because blacks didn't pass them at the same right, rate as whites and Asians. It was never necessary to point to any question 
you know, in a firefighter's ex exam, they're basically testing literacy to make sure that somebody can read the chemicals uh, and know about mixing them in firefighting or be able to read the patrol guide in, in policing. Uh, so these lawsuits went on and on for decades and they never actually showed what was racist, but simply because they had a disparate impact on blacks, they had to be thrown out and either you'd get rid of all qualifications or you would lower the academic skills level further to be you know, maybe a third level, uh, third grade level of reading. So that was disparate impact in the areas of meritocratic institutions. And what we've been seeing everywhere with law enforcement since George Floyd is the tearing down of law enforcement policing. Prosecutors are not prosecuting the law uh, because were they to do so sadly, and in a colorblind constitutional fashion, they will have a disparate impact on black criminals. It's not because the law is racist, but sadly, and these are very difficult facts to put out there, Clifton, but at this point, the hour is late and I, I believe in racial etiquette, but when you have every institution being torn down in the name of disparate impact, I'm gonna give an alternative explanation for our ongoing racial disparities, and that is, uh, skills gaps and crime gaps. So the reason law enforcement has a disparate impact is not because it's racist, but because sadly blacks commit crime at higher rates and they are also astronomically higher rates of victim victimization in the black community. In the in the arts world, uh, you know, that we have meritocratic standards and they they're not racist. There's less of a tradition in the black family of, of teaching your kids classical music. Although I profile two fantastic violinists in the book, uh, Joseph Striplin, who's a conductor now in Virginia and John McLaughlin Williams, who's an absolute entrepreneur, a, a recording entrepreneur with the American tradition. And his, his, his lots of his CDs are like supremely multicultural. They're the Ukrainian National Orchestra on Naxos, a black conductor doing uh, unknown American white romantic composers. So this guy is about as colorblind as it gets. Um, and and he said, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna have orchestral auditions now that are no longer blind, and and this is getting rid of this tradition that you would you would audition for an orchestra behind a screen to remove any possible favoritism. And the lead music critic of the New York Times, Anthony Tomasini, after George Floyd called for de-blinding orchestral auditions so that conductors or the audition committee could choose on the basis of race. And McLaughlin Williams, this, this black conductor said to me, well, if we're gonna do that, why don't you just, all you do is you send in a headshot and, and you can like make your decisions for who you put on the first violin seat, you know, based on that. Hmm. So, um, you know there are there are some there are some standards that have a disparate impact not not necessarily for the same reasons of a skills gap it's just that there's less home in, uh home involvement and as i started to say both mclaughlin williams was raised by two pianists who'd gone to howard but joseph striplin he said he came from a classic inner city single mother family but he was in detroit in the 40s and 50s when he, his school had orchestras, many orchestras, he went to the very prestigious Cass Technical School, and he said there was classical music everywhere. On the radio, it was in popular culture. That doesn't exist. So you're, if you're not getting it in the home, 
And basically the only people to do so now are Asians, the tiger moms, uh, you're really not going to be exposed to classical music at all as a child. And that's, I find a tragedy. Well, it's very difficult. You know, you, you brought up cultural differences and, uh, you know, I've, I've faced this myself. I mean, one of the things that made your book so upsetting is that you just lay it out, um, you, you know, testing scores, IQ scores, all of these things, which are very, very hot button issues and difficult to touch on. But yet the, the measures taken to remedy these, uh, these shortfalls, uh, you know, they actually, in my opinion, have a disparate impact on the people that they're meant to help the most. Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, you are maybe referring to what's known as the mismatch effect. And I completely agree. Uh, let's take it out of race. If, if MIT decided it needed more females, and again, I have to cop to being one, and it admitted me, uh, with 600s on my math SATs on an 800 point scale because they got to have more gender parity. And so there I am going into MIT because of my sex and my peers who are admitted on a sex blind basis all have average of 800 perfect scores on their SATs. I'm going to flounder in my freshman calculus. I'll probably flunk out of that and I'll probably give up on my hope of being an engineer Whereas had I gone to a school where I wasn't the so-called beneficiary of gender preferences and I actually matched the academic qualifications of my peers, so I don't know what that school would be with 600 as an average math SAT, but let's just posit uh, Boston College or Boston University rather than MIT, which are perfectly respectable schools, I would do well because the pitching would be geared towards my level and my peers' level of academic accomplishment. Well, Clifton, the same thing happens with race preferences, which are even deeper. The gulf is wider. It is cruel. These damn college presidents who are so virtue signaling that think that their identity depends on looking out over their student body and seeing a suitably diverse group of faces are taking Black students in under completely unfair conditions. Black students are the only students that are routinely catapulted into academic environments for which they are not competitively qualified. They are qualified to go to many colleges. Just have them go on the same conditions as everybody else. So you are absolutely right that the disparate impact of disparate impact policies is perverse and negative and helps nobody and it increases racial tensions because those black students who are admitted to schools for which they are not competitively qualified, though again, I am not saying Blacks should not go to college. I'm saying go to college under the same conditions as everyone else in the schools where they are floundering. The diversity bureaucracy tells them you are suffering from systemic racism. The reason you're not keeping up, the reason you feel out of sorts is because you are in a racist environment which could not be further from the truth colleges are not racist. They are immaculately open, tolerant towards history's marginalized groups. Do you drink coffee or tea? Of course you do. And that's why I want to tell you about my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. Twin Engine Coffee grows and roasts specialty-grade coffees right on the farms in Central America. If you don't drink coffee, try Katura Tea, my personal favorite, made from the dried fruit of the coffee plant. Pro tip, add some ginger, lemon, honey, and a dash of cayenne powder, and you'll have the perfect, sexy, soothing concoction. Support small business and this podcast and order from TwinEngineCoffee.com slash 
slash Clifton Duncan. Again, that is TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Well, you know, it's difficult about that. You know, I mean, everything that you said, you know, I, I know that the counter would be, well, it sounds like you're saying that uh, blacks as a whole simply uh, aren't qualified to to hit the highest levels. And it's I, I'm torn because, you know, I I've seen just in my personal life these um you know, I, I observe these sort of practices which hold people back. And and to me, you know, you, you talk about, um, I mean, I have a friend who talks about this on Twitter a lot, you know, in terms of mate selection and, you know, prenatal care, taking care of your children, just best practices in order to raise these these IQs over time. But you now have a, a culture flooded with, with activists who, um, who will hear none of it. But also on top of all of that, you have a culture that's for generations now been told that everything is racist. And so they're not trying to hear that. I mean, if, if we had had this conversation five years ago, I, I probably would have been through the roof, but it's really difficult for me. I'm sitting here squirming <laughs> because it's just, it's, it's, it's tough to avoid a lot of this stuff. Um, I want to shift gears because I know I don't have a lot of time with you. I mean, you mentioned, um, bringing it back to the art world um in terms of schools which aren't matched for schools which aren't matched for you know or, or the, the mismatch um, um problem you talked about um you know a lot of this stuff in terms of art you know i was reading your your book especially the the uproar at juilliard and uh you know i i, I always um relish dunking on juilliard it's one of my the, those rival schools that, that uh you know from my my conservatories but uh but, you know, I, I mean, Juilliard has given us great actors like Ving Rhames and Viola Davis, the Broadway actor, Daniel Breaker, even now, um, Corey Antonio Hawkins, who was one of the leads in the In the Heights movie, and uh, which you brought up, um, as well as uh, Tiona Paris, who's starring, starring as uh, Monica Rambeau in the upcoming Marvels film. Um, there's been a, a lot of wonderful artists who've gone through that school, but just the, and this happens at NYU, my alma mater as well, you know, they, they, they're telling these they want to decolonize these curriculums they're telling these kids that everything is racist they're coddling their in their inferiority complexes and i think to myself i don't want to work with any of these kids so you you have to go into what's happened at juilliard because i thought it was so extraordinary well first of all let me just say clifton this book talks about averages not individuals and there are thousands of people within the so-called underrepresented minority groups that way outperform whites and asians uh so you can't make any clear judgments about any individual knowing the group average. That being said, uh, the attack on Western civilization is done through sort of average representation. And the fact is the averages are, are different. And, um, and that those averages make it mathematically impossible to have proportional representation across the board in meritocratic institutions without lowering standards. So uh, I'm not saying what's inevitable, you know, the, as you say, the culture is very different. I would label as well, not just anti-racism, but the whole anti-acting white uh, ethic, which depresses achievement and effort, which is very, very tragic. Um, but yeah, Juilliard was just pathetic, utterly pathetic. <laughs> it, the Juilliard after George Floyd decided it was gonna be like even more equity, diversity, inclusion and belonging than ever before. And so it brought in this black diversity consultant from NYU, as a matter of fact, um, who was going to give a three day workshop on black culture, black musical culture in specific. And he first asked students to write a short essay um, about some significant moment in black history 
Well, this was already getting way too racist for black Juilliard's black students. The, the, the ringleader of the Fuhrer that would later develop already was writing about, well, I'm not sure, you know, that that uh, these white people have an entitlement to do write about black history. And why should I be having to write about this? This is really, you know, triggering for me. So that started the ball rolling. But then this guy, McElroy, uh, had an exercise, this was all via Zoom, that was a recreation of an African slave auction during the height of the transatlantic slave trade. And the dialogue came from the TV miniseries from the 1970s, Roots, and it was audio recreation of an auction. And the students were watching it and they were supposed to then sort of have a reaction later um, to what they heard. And a lot of several black students and a lot of white students said they found it extraordinarily moving. You know, it, it made things very concrete and visceral. But at the same time as this, uh, they were watching all this, a group of other Juilliard drama black students were emailing or furiously texting each other about how oppressive this was and triggering. And they were all like on the verge of mass suicide and death by trauma because somehow this black diversity consultant, McElroy, was culturally appropriating them or something. And they just, they flipped out. They wrote all sorts of complaints to the bureaucracy. The head of Juilliard, the whole conservatory, Damien Wetzel, who was a ballet dancer before he became head of Juilliard, completely fell on his sword. He got rid of McElroy without any explanation. He didn't, as far as I can tell, he didn't ask for McElroy to defend this work, which was eminently defensible. And can I and, jump in really quickly? These yeah. students were so ignorant. Michael McElroy, for those who don't know, is a Tony Award winning uh, black performer who I'm, I've met him. I mean, he's, you know, he's a, a nice guy, just a wonderful soul, and he's a brilliant performer. So the fact that they that they had the opportunity to work with someone like Michael yeah. uh, and, and completely got rid of him, it's just ridiculous. Well, the, OK, the students are ridiculous. Students, by definition, are ridiculous. The real ridiculousness comes from Damien Wetzel and the provost, Eric Guzemelian of, of Juilliard, who caved in. They are cowards. What is the point of you guys even existing if you do not have the courage to stand up for your, for your workers like McElroy or your tradition? And so this became a, an, an opportunity for one series of student uh, GoFundMe petitions or whatever the, the website is, complaining about the fact that the Juilliard students were having to learn the Western theatrical tradition. And they had all sorts of ridiculous, you know, demands about from now on, we're only going to learn, you know, we have to be doing 50% Black plays. Uh, don't ask us to learn the general American dialect. Uh, don't ask us. The weird one was don't ask us to play white parts if we have to get outside of our racial identity. Uh, and the thing is that like blacks have cornered the market on theatrical parts, like blacks get to perform white parts, but it is unthinkable that a white would be able to perform a black part. But here these students were like so desperate to come up with some demand that nobody had thought up of before that they're saying, well, I don't think we should be playing white parts either, at least if that means that we can't like, I don't know, talk with a, a Southern accent or something. It was, it, it was, they were basically incoherent 
uh, but they completely got away with it. And they were saying, we want uh, all disciplinary sanctions against black students for coming late or being truant. They should all be lifted because being on time is just another aspect of white supremacy, but the white students that have disciplinary marks on their record for being late or truant, those marks should stand. Uh, and, and so they were just like on a roll. And, and they're gonna, as you say, like, will they be employable? Well, the answer Clifton sadly is yes. The theater world was the most, the most assaulted by the post George Floyd hysteria more so than opera, more so than art museums. I've talked to uh, theater directors across the country who are just terrified. Their staff is all in revolt. They get all head up if they don't have, you know, sufficient diversity on their staff or in their, uh, you know, the, the actors that they choose. And it's really, really something. You know, it, it, it's so frustrating. I mean, because even years before all this happened, I said to myself, I don't want to work with any of these kids. Um, you, you know, and for one, they're, they're in in other fields, you would you would think that the compromising of standards and the, you know, the lowering. And it's funny because in, in show business, you know, one of the one of the seven deadly sins that you can never be late. I remember there was, you know, when all this stuff really? was sort of, yeah, like, you know, you're, you're making out with your co-stars that you met like the week before. But, you know, but if you're two minutes late to rehearsal, um, then everyone, you know, will 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 we'll talk dirty about you. And, uh, you know, I, I remember working with um, the brilliant Tony Award winning actor Chuck Cooper, and uh, we were doing a show at City Center. And we came back from a lunch break, and he was already on stage and mic'd up and ready to go. And I said, and I kind of cracked a joke like, Chuck, you were ready to go. He was like, well, you know, I come from a generation where if, you know, you weren't on time and ready to go, people would talk about you. And so when I hear these kids say, you know, we shouldn't be forced to be on time and we, and, and, you know, or the stupid idea, I mean, standard American speech, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. just a, a baseline. It's a skill right. set. Right. And if you don't learn it, then it, it robs you of the ability to, you know, do Shakespeare, to do these older plays, to, you know, or if you're auditioning for, for TV and film, you know, someone puts you, puts some medical jargon or some legal jargon in front of you, then you have a baseline to work from. And it just makes you more flexible. It, it gives you, it, it widens your skill set. So in, in, in a just world, they'd be making themselves unemployable. But as you said, everyone is catering to these people. So they'll, they'll, they'll have jobs anyway. And That's my right. fear is that, uh, and it's, I think it's already happening now, where people are going to be looking at these people on stage and on screen. I'm, and I'm hearing from my spies that the work on stage right now is really bad, actually. It's not that good. And, um, but people are going to say, oh, they're going to see these black faces and they're going to say to themselves, that person isn't there because of their ability or their charisma or, you know, or, their, or how compelling they are. They're there because they're the right skin color. And I think it's going to just turn people away. True. And Clifton, I mean, you are so honest and i'm so i'm going to be honest with you i mean the the excuse making is getting wearying i talk as well in the book about a opera zoom call after george floyd that the la opera organized with a bunch of pretty radical black opera singers janae bridges organized it and the one of the singers was russell thomas and he was saying that uh he was in rehearsals for an opera and was getting criticized for coming late all the time. And he was, he said, well, they didn't take into account. He claimed it was because he had problems in his family, which could well be true. But to racialize that is ridiculous. I mean, at some point, I have to say, the culture at large may just grow sick of the excuse making that 
you know, if a if a black person doesn't get a promotion, it's by definition because of racism. If a white person doesn't get a promotion, well, maybe he actually didn't deserve it. And the playing of the race card is getting wearisome. Uh, most whites, well, I'm going to be very explicit about this because again, we're whites are being told that they're the problem. And so at some point, whites are going to start using the white word themselves. And I'm going to do it here because that's the world we live in. At some point, um, whites may be a little less likely to hang down their heads in penance at the you know, accusations that the reason that this less desirable outcome occurred to a Black person was because that person was Black rather than there was some behavioral issue or whatnot. As far as the general American dialect, I talk in the book about this amazing recording on Audible that I listened to of Richard Wright's native son. Oh, Peter Francis James, yeah. Oh, this, the, I, the scene where the two white privileged kids, the communist uh, male and the daughter of the, of the, uh, you know, rich benefactor, uh, are are taking bigger Thomas to want to have him take them to a um, a a black eating place is just amazing. It it's it it's terrifying. It's horrifying. It's nauseating. The way he navigates through language, through accents, through rhythm, the ignorant entitlement of these two white kids and the anguish of Bigger Thomas, his racial embarrassment, his, his just absolute terror of how do I deal with these people? It is amazing. And, and the, the narrator was able to do that because he had allowed himself to enter the extraordinarily broad world of human experience and, and expression. Well, Peter is a classically trained actor. I mean, he does Shakespeare, he does, he does all of it. And these, these, I'm gonna, these dumb fucking kids yep. um, are shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, even in the, in the and they always erase people as well, which I find um, really frustrating. I mean, even in the opera world, I jotted down some some names of of singers that I've discovered just in my YouTube rabbit holes from Leontine Price, Shirley Verrett, Jesse Norman, Marion Williamson, Grace Bunbury. I mean, these these are extraordinary performers um, who were performing in opera at a time when perhaps there was more discrimination and and more barriers to to overcome, but. To hear these or to read about these black opera singers um, complaining that uh, they feel discriminated against, I'm just saying to myself, well, now you're just you're you're crapping all over the legacy of these people right. who've come before you, and yes, this yes. is what all these people they have they have to erase everyone who came before or everyone who is operating uh, now because it goes against their narrative of well we can't succeed because I I, I, ha I suspect that uh, if they take into account that others have come before them and succeeded, it, it, it might point the finger back at themselves as the cause of their uh, their lack of achievement. Yeah, well, and I would add Simon Estes, uh, the great baritone who I recently heard in, in New York Philharmonic, there was a whole concert uh, called the March to Liberation. And it had a, it was all black composers. And it was very good. I'll, I'll confess, I went there sort of skeptical, and I wrote a very positive review of it. Um, there was a, a Willem Grant Still Symphony Number no. Two, and then a work by Adolphus Hailstork, and Estes was the um, was the narrator in it, and you know very magisterial. Um, but the again the excuse making is incredible in the opera world. Uh, 
there was a woman, I think it's Lauren Michael, that said, well, the only reason that I've never sung in an A house in in the United States, this being, you know, the top tier of the Metropolitan Opera and probably San Francisco and Chicago, I don't really know what the A houses are, is because I'm Black. Well, really? Because right now, you know, the number of Blacks who are singing is Janae Bridges, is Lawrence Brownlee, it's, it's uh, uh, Pretty Yende, it just goes on and on. So that statement is like completely counterfactual uh, it just, it doesn't suffice. You know, if, if it's, if you're not singing because you're black, then none of these other people should be singing because you're black. Maybe you just haven't done well enough in your auditions, but that's and, not, you can't say that. Well, you know, and, and it's, and it just, I know you have to go soon, but you know, it's for a, me, I, I, the, in my own career, you know, when I wanted to work more in television and film, I mean, I worked for a year with my friend on my on camera technique. And I went from, you know, no television work to guest starring on three out of the four major broadcast networks. When I began to really seriously work on my singing, that's when I began to distinguish myself as a performer in New York City, the, the huge competitive market. And so for me, you know, when I see these people complaining, I say to myself, shut up. And, you know, people, there are people out there who are actually putting in the work and putting in the time and they're, they're making strides that you're not. So maybe the problem isn't the system. Maybe the problem is you broke ass. Um, you know, b before, I, before I let you go, we touched on this last time, but I, I want to try to get your thoughts on this uh, as well. I, I, my frustration lately is that there is, um, I mean, and it was last time when I spoke to you as well, is that there seems to be a, a it's like me, you, and like maybe Camille Paglia are the only people talking about the importance of art in, in society and especially American society and American culture. And I see all these pundits talking and influencers talking about, you know, the culture war this and culture war that, but they keep ignoring the art that these culture, that the, the cultures produce. And, you know, you write so passionately and so exquisitely and so eloquently about the importance of art and, and the beauty of art. And I just, I, I would love for you to, um, I'll give you the floor to talk about the importance of art in, in our culture and society and what we stand to lose if we allow, if we keep ignoring it and we keep allowing these people to, to denigrate it. Uh, so. Well, it, it takes us out of ourselves. It gives us a way of expanding our knowledge of what it is to be human. We each individual leads these incredibly confined, constricted lives. We're, we're all narcissists. We think the world revolves around us. And, and we're limited in what we can know about other human beings. And art allows you to transcend yourself and go back in time. I mean, I'm, I'm always appalled by these efforts to update works, you know, whether it's update operas in their setting or theater. Uh, there was recently uh, a, a conductor in Baltimore, Marin Alsop, uh, commissioned a whole bunch of new poems for Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which ends, the fourth movement famously ends with a setting of Friedrich Schiller's Ode to Joy on Die Freude. And, you know, Schiller is very archaic right now. In 18th century, one of the great German romantic classes on the border between romanticism and classicism, uh, dramatist and poet. Nobody would write Schiller's Ode to Joy today. It's, it's in an elevated rhetoric. It, it uses abstractions, it's, it's idealistic, it's not about identity politics or hatred. And for that very reason, 
because it's foreign to us, we should embrace it and try to understand what it meant to be Schiller in the 18th century, to be yearning for freedom, to be fighting against absolute monarchies, to believe in the power of the individual, to use a rhetoric, a poetic language that had been developed over decades and decades, emulating Greeks probably, the same with music. I mean, music, whether it's classical or another form, allows you to follow the movement of another individual's soul. When you're listening to a symphony or a Chopin nocturne, I just turned off, uh, there was a Schubert song cycle that came on the radio, Die Schöne Müller, and I immediately turned it off because it's too painful, it's too beautiful, I cannot take it. It will fell me immediately with its pathos and tragedy. I, I can't listen any longer. Uh, it, it's, it's too raw and too gorgeous. But all of these works, composers are expressing something about how they think and feel in linear time. And it allows you to get out of yourself and feel eros and longing and sorrow and wit and joy that you, because you're pathetic, I'm pathetic, I do not have those gifts, would not otherwise have access to. And so we are, I mean, it scares me that I'm gonna die without having heard all the great classical music that I that should be heard or having read everything, but I'm pretty well educated, but people that know even less, <laughs> I know like it's you're not supposed to criticize anybody for anything ever, but I'm just going to say you're missing out and like get to it, guys. There's great courses you can take. Try to expose yourself to stuff that isn't just of the moment. It isn't just our current culture wars or isn't just crappy TV series, even though I discovered Seinfeld very late in life, watch it all in reruns. It's great. I mean, I admit it. So is Frazier. There's really great stuff being done, but there's also really great stuff in the past. And whether it's pastoral poetry or the 19th century British novel, uh, you will not regret it, I believe. And sometimes it's hard to overcome the distance of time. Languages are more formal. Uh, conventions are more formal. But still, I think that it is you know, it's what Du Bois said of being able to walk arm in arm with Aristotle and Aurelius. It it allows you to overcome your own mortality and the and the the fortress of time that keeps you limited to your own particular time. Well, and there also is something to be said about uh, studying works from the past, which are unencumbered by political correctness. And you find that these writers <laughs> can actually tell the truth about who we That's are. And, and you'll find that uh, we honestly have not changed much as, as, a, as a species. Um, her name is Heather McDonald. The book is called When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty and Threatens Lives. It is a very it's, it's an incendiary book. It's very difficult uh, to read in places, but uh, I think it's well worth starting, starting uh, the conversation uh, because I agree with Heather that down the, down the line, um, these are society-destroying um, uh, 
um, things that are happening right now. And we have to address it one way or another before everything comes tumbling down. Ms. McDonald, it's been such a pleasure to have you back again. I hope that uh, I get to, to have you again for a, a longer period at some time in the future. Maybe maybe next year. We'll see. We'll see what we can do. Well, I hope that before I do get to be on with you again, Clifton, we actually will have met, uh, yes. you know, your place or mine, but uh, these, I, I, I would love to be with you in person and not staring at this damn camera uh, because it's another reason, like, don't just think that going, listening to classical music or any kind of music on the CD is the same as being in a concert hall and having your body vibrate to what a symphony orchestra can do, that sonic infusion is unlike what you're getting through of course nobody listens to cds that just shows how old i am but whatever you listen to it's not the same and it's not the same talking to my stupid camera on top of my monitor rather than talking to you clifton so we've got to work this geographically out well uh if and when i get to the uh what i call the city formerly known as new york sorry um <laughs> i i will you'll be the first person i look up or the New York formerly known as a city instead of a uh, a rat hole or a hell hole. So that's really what it's like. I, I don't recommend coming back. Oof. Well, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Disparate take... impact doesn't help either. So. Oof. Well, take care, Heather. Thank you, Clifton. Mm -hmm.